Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 12, 2014, this is episode 1344 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday, Monday, Monday. What the hell is that about? Well, we, we didn't have Friday, Friday, Friday. I had to take Dorothy uh, to the doctor, and then they, uh, they sent us to do some testing. Uh, she has... Uh, some kind of viral thing or something, but she's had terrible pain in her back and neck, and the doctor just, you know, said, you got to rule out meningitis, so we ended up doing that for most of Friday, so Friday's show got preempted, the ER doc said, this is not meningitis, and you probably didn't need to come here, but you still did the right thing, because you don't jack around with something that could, you know, kill you, um, so she's feeling a little better, but we're still not sure, so all of your thoughts and, uh, Positive thoughts and prayers and things like that that you guys have uh, made known, that you guys have uh, sent toward Dorothy, is really greatly appreciated. And uh, I do believe that just the, the positive energy of people actually thinking good things for someone can be helpful. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, because we didn't have Friday, 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 today we have Monday, Monday, Monday. And I know that, like, you know, hearing that on a Monday might be like, come on, man, it's Monday. I don't want Friday, Friday, Friday is cool. Monday, Monday, Monday has nothing to do with monster trucks or monster calls, but it does today. These are going to be your calls. I'm going to make up the show that we missed on Friday because we've had two weeks without one because of my vacation, et cetera. So we're going to do listener calls show 1344 today. Your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. If you pick the phone up right now and call that number, you will not hear. Hi, this is Jack. Welcome to the show because this is a pre-recorded show. You'll get a place where you can leave a voice message with your comment or question. If you want to be on the air, I would do that in two minutes or less, and I would make your point or ask your question immediately at the beginning in one or two sentences and then give me your details. I'd call from a quiet area, and I'd make sure I had some bars on my cell phone if I was calling from there. Other than that... Um, you, you know, you probably have a 50-50 shot of getting on the air, uh, with call volumes right now. Uh, if you've called in more than three weeks ago and you don't hear yourself today, assume that your call got washed out in the flush and, uh, make that call again. I can't get all the calls on the air. I do my best. Sometimes you guys make a call. I just can't hear you or you just don't get to your point in the first, like, minute. If you, if I'm listening to a call at about 45 seconds, if I still don't know why you're calling, delete, I go to the next call. I'm sorry, it's just a time-constrained thing. I try to give you the formula to get your call answered. That, again, is call, question, or comment immediately. Details to follow. Quiet area. Speak up. Speak into the phone. Don't turn your head away from the phone like this because I can't hear you. And I can only magnify the volume of your call so much before it becomes, you know, Poor sounding. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, jmbullion.com. Hey, I'm going to answer a question today about silver. And one question is easy to answer. If I'm going to buy silver, where should I go online? JM Bullion. Why? Better pricing than Monex or Atmex, period, plain and simple. And uh, if, you, if you go to JM Bullion, you'll be supporting the show because you'll be dealing with one of our sponsors. But how about this? Let's say you have a hiccup in your order. Something doesn't go quite right. You let me know about it. If you contact them first, for God's sakes, please. Those of you that contact me every time there's a hiccup with a sponsor's order before you give them a chance to fix it, remember this is a human planet with human beings. Things go wrong, people fix things. But if there's something lost in the ether, I am two seconds away from hitting Michael, the president and owner of the company, by email, and bam, the guy responds like 
faster than I do, which is pretty impressive. So you've got better pricing, great selection, and ultra-responsive service from the owner of the company. Bull Morgan Jasper, check them out today, jmbullion.com, your source for silver and gold bullion. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, let's talk about the other precious metal for a minute, copper jacketed lead. Ammo, you got to have ammo, you put that in your gun, now you've got a loaded weapon. Now you've got two parts of the triangle of gun operator efficiency, but you know what you're missing? The operator, you. And that's why you need good, professional, state-of-the-art training that you'll get from Fortress Defense Consultants. You can learn more at FortressDefense.com. Every single student who has gone to Frank Sharp's uh, class and has got in touch with me cannot stop talking about how great the training is. It's, it's really an investment in yourself. You know, you can lose your gun, you can lose your ammo, your gun can be damaged, what have you. The training and the knowledge that you have is permanent as long as you keep working. And that's what I love about Frank. Not only will he train you, he will train you to train yourself so that you leave his classes knowing how to continue to work on and develop your skills on your own. They're also perpetual students at Fortress Defense. This is one of the most important things I can think of when choosing a firearms instructor. If I was interviewing people to be a personal instructor for me, one of the questions I would ask them, how often do you take training from other instructors? And if the answer is less than two or three times a year, I'm probably not taking that instructor. Instructors that think, well, I've got it all worked out and I don't need any further training, that is not who you want in any line of work. The best teachers are also the best students. That's what you're going to find at at Fortress Defense. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. MSB Discount Vendor of the Day. How about TSPGear.com? Do you know we give you a discount on all your gear if you're an MSB member, 10%? We have some really cool stuff, French press mugs, T-shirts, patches, all kinds of great stuff. TSPGear.com, show your affiliation with the Survival Podcast off with pride. We have some really cool stuff. Check out the Ant T-shirts that have the coffee theme going on. Every time I wear that shirt in public, they're like, man, that's awesome, where'd you get that shirt? And I'm like, funny you should ask. I have to do this podcast. You know, and maybe you can spread the word a little bit that way. But it's an awesome-looking shirt. The French press mugs are awesome. The tools we have there are awesome. Check it out today, tspgear.com. All right, um, next up on that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You can support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You do the math, that comes out to 50 bucks a year. And uh, you can join by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And uh, following the instructions there to join, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, first responders, EMTs, paramedics, firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount if you email me at, at jack at com before you join. Put service discount in the subject line, and we'll go from there. I'll email you back and tell you uh, how to get a discount on an already great product. Tell me about your service in one to two sentences. I don't need a paragraph. I don't need a book. And I certainly don't need your CV or a photocopy of your ID or anything like that. Please don't do that. That puts you at a security risk. I'd prefer you not do to yourself. All right, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode, the year 1344. I'm going to tell you the origin of something you've likely heard before in regards to silver and gold, Gresham's Law. But it wasn't Gresham's Law in the beginning. Uh, This may not even be the first time that... It's ever happened. I'm probably pretty sure it isn't, but it's one of the earliest recorded expo- examples that I've seen. Bad Money versus Good Money by Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. TSP Whippy? <laughs> tspwiki.com, the year 1344. King Edward III of England has a brilliant idea for solving his coin shortage pro- problem. 
He releases three new gold coins. Unfortunately, everyone quickly notices the content of the metal in his new coins is far, far less than the value stamped on the coin. The coins will be recalled when the Royal Mint realizes they have made the coin shortage even worse, as all the full-value gold and silver coins leave the country and are melted down for their base metal value. The value-less coins are now being used to pay off debts, such as the debts owed to the king, which he must accept at their full value, even though no one else will. This phenomenon is known as Copernicus' law, even though modern-day it's known as Gresham's law. Bad money always chases out the good. This is exactly what happened in the United States in 1965 and forward, when they took silver out of our money. Up until 1964, a quarter or a dime or a 50-cent piece or a dollar was made of 90% silver. And then in 1965, all except some 40% silver that was made here and there ended up being made out of copper. A copper core, a copper zinc, uh, just basically junk metal. And in the 60s, a lot of that disappeared. In the 70s, tons of it disappeared. Literal tons. Um, by the 1980s, in the early 1980s, I remember going through coins with my grandmother, who had a job as a waitress in, in her semi-retired state, and we would find silver coins every week. We would find silver coins in her tips. Not a lot of them, but a few. A couple bucks worth on most weeks. So this is the early 80s. Now, when you find a silver coin in circulation, it is very, very rare indeed, and I bet you pick it out. And I tell you that the main way that that happens is some kid somewhere finds a stash of this stuff and doesn't have a clue what it is, steals mom, dad's, or uncle's stuff, and goes out and spends the money, and somehow it makes its way around and gets to you. But this is a very old phenomenon. It's not going to change. Government cannot change it. And uh, the interesting thing is when government does this and creates value-less currency, the way they give it value is by taking it in the form of debts owed to them, which is primarily taxes. And they have to take it, even if no one else will. That's why they have laws today that require you to take it, like legal tender. But most people don't know about the legal tender law. The legal tender law does not require you at all whatsoever to accept dollars. What it requires you to do is if you advertise prices in dollars in the United States and somebody tries to pay you with cash or check or money order uh, in dollars, you cannot say, I will not take it because it's in dollars, because you advertised in dollars. Did you know this? There is nothing, nothing that makes anybody accept any currency at all in regard to the legal tender law, other than if you go into a restaurant. Well, and this is where I think the legal tender law is good. And you're in the United States of America, and it says, you know, surf and turf, 28. Okay. When they bring you the bill, they can't say, oh, we meant 28 rubles or whatever. We don't take dollars here, 28 bitcoins, which would be like, you know, I don't know, $15,000, right? You can't do that. This specifically by the legal tender law, if, you're, if you are taking anything in exchange for your goods or services other than dollars, you're required to say what that is, or it's implied that it's dollars. So, maybe one day the U.S. will once again reap the pain of people saying, I'm not taking dollars. Who knows? Another good reason to have silver and gold as part of your portfolio. With that, I want to get into the main parts of today's show, but I want to start out with a few things uh, before I take your calls. I've got a very, very cool update about Permaethos. 
I did hear back from my partners today, all but one. Enough that I know we're going to go forward with this. I won't give all the specifics because that one is kind of key to one. But here's the deal. As we've been saying, around the 20th of May, and we'll see if all the paperwork gets done and everything worked out and so we can take your money and not create a tax nightmare for ourselves by the 20th of May, there's a target launch date right now for the permaculture design course for permaethos, where you can get a PDC that I believe is worth $1,200 to $1,500 for about $300, bucks, okay, for the first thousand people, and then it's closed, C-L-O-S-E-D, closed, no more. Those thousand members become foundational members of Permaethos and are given first consideration in anything that we do in the future and any projects or products or anything that we sell will be some sort of discount offered to those people as well. We don't even know what all the benefits are going to be of being a member like that yet, but we do know there will only ever be a thousand of them, period. That is our commitment to you. We have heard from more people than we can possibly help out in the first three to five years. There's no way we can help out as many people as we're hearing from that want to be part of this on a bigger level. I want you to come here and build a farm where I'm at. What's your budget? How much land do you have? What are you thinking? What type of house? I mean, it's, it's, it's a bigger commitment than I think most people realize. If you think we're going to show up and build everything for you, we, we can't do that. It's more of a client relationship where you would be the client. And then we have a lot of people that I have an acre, I have two acres, I have ten acres, whatever. And it's not big enough for a full-on ethos farm. Um, our thoughts have been from the beginning, how do we maximize participation of the community? In fact, when Kevin, who's one of my partners at Permit Ethos, came to me at an event that I ran where he attended, brought his prints of, of the Elijah Springs farm that we're going to do this on, and put that in front of me, I said one of the, the biggest things that I had to figure out was how do we make sure that we let the people that are in the survival podcast community, the Brink of Freedom community, and the expanding Permit Ethos concept community be part of this, right? Because when we bring investors in that are small in number and we just do the farm the way we're going to do it, how do we increase the way that, that people can be involved and be part of what we're doing? Because that's the whole point in the first place, was this maximum involvement with doers in a duocracy. So one of our partners, Nick Ferguson, wants to build a nursery at his facility in Louisiana, which is probably a good idea that we set up our own partner as a virtual element partner that way so that we can have that nursery fully manned and fully operational because we probably don't have the horsepower, manpower, or time to put a full-on nursery into Elijah Springs in the first year. So what I proposed to Nick, and he'll probably be more than happy to do, is that he do a course on plant propagation. Let's see where I'm going with this. I got another one already that I'll tell you about in a second. This is cool. So it'll be required that you have a PDC. We haven't decided if it has to be ours or ours or an equivalent that we'll recognize. I'll definitely tell you that if we limit the number of people there, the first people that get a shot at it are people that have taken our PDC, our foundational product, our all-on-the-ground, in-the-field PDC, over-the-internet, awesome professional camera work, overhead drone shots, You name it. I mean, this is top quality stuff. Again, this is a $1,500 course for $300. thousand people cut off. Those folks can then take this plant propagation course if they want to. Course, there's a fee for it. It's not free. There'll be a discount versus the general public if it's even open to the general public, depending on demand. But what it'll do is teach you all methods of plant propagation and basically how to run your own small nursery, how to do things like cuttings, how to do grafting, how to make unique varieties, 
isolation of different species, hand pollination and grafting to accelerate your results, all the stuff you would need to know to set up your small micro nursery. That would be one product. Michael Jordan is an amazing guy, not the basketball player, beekeeper, known as the bee whisperer out of Wyoming. He's going to be one he's going to actually be our first on-site element partner. He's bringing all his own equipment. He's setting up beehives. He's going to be making honey and mead products right off Elijah Springs within the first year. And we are setting him up, and he's going on. As he sets that up, though, he's going to do something that's never been done before. How about a bee design course? So this man knows more about bees than any other ten people I've ever talked to combined. If you ask him a question, he doesn't say it's this or that. He says, well... This is what this does. This is what that does. What do you want based on that? This is a guy that's gone to Africa and said, I'm going to set up villages with bees. And they go, we don't have any money. And he says, we're going to go to the junkyard. We're going to use this. We're going to make a hive. And then we're going to cast a swarm, a wild swarm. And we're going to take this. We're going to put a string on the bee. And the bee flies back to the, to the, have you ever heard of anything like this? So the bee flies all the way back to its hive. And they follow the bee. And when they want to figure out where the hive is, they look and they see a little string dangling down because the other bees won't let the bee go in with a foreign body. And they cut the tree out and they put the bees in. The, the, the level of thinking. This is a guy that set up a bee college for kids. This guy's amazing. He's going to do a bee design course. Okay? So that course will be available. Now, here's what makes this different. Okay? P anybody could take either one of these courses. But you're going to have to have a PDC plus this course for their next part. This is how I want to maximize things. I want to allow people to sell honey and bee products under the Permaethos logo, Permaethos certified honey and bee products, and Permaethos certified plants, okay? Plants, trees, bushes, vines, plants that are propagated because they're using our methods, under our instructions, under permaculture ethics, And we will have a site, all the details are not worked out yet, but where the person can take and sell their product on basically a virtual permaethos mall. So you want honey, but you want local honey. And you live in Tennessee. Click Honey Tennessee. Boom. They're permaethos providers of honey in Tennessee. That is where we're going. And the same with the nursery. Um, nursery, I think that we also have an incredible opportunity in that I've got a 110-acre farm I cannot afford to buy plants at catalog prices for. Um, we want to buy unique varieties and things like that. So anybody that's a certified plant producer, um, you know, we're going to want wholesale pricing, obviously, but you're selling larger quantities. We'll go to our own community to buy our own plants first. And we'll set up a virtual mall just like that where people can sell at retail to the public Under the Ethos brand, these are Ethos-branded, produced plants because they're by the methods that we teach under permaculture ethics and under our supervision. And that means if we find out, for instance, if somebody says they're selling plants and they get like 10 different people that say, hey, look, I got dead plants, you're nukes, you're out, you're done, you're toast. So there's a quality assurance component there as well. But it takes our umbrella And it lets us put it over top of a much broader community. And there's other opportunities like this that are going to come. These are not products that are going to be available in August. Just to, just to be clear, Mike is going to be spending the summer setting up his bees, doing the filming. Kelly, our, our video producer, is going to be working on the PDC. That's going to be running all summer. It will probably be into the fall before Kelly's doing the post-production work on Michael's bee course. 
Nick, has bought a lot of his course is going to be in text and written, I'm guessing. Uh, videos on how to do all of the grafting, how to do the hand pollination, things like that. That's probably a late fall product as well. That gives people plenty of time to compete, complete their PDC first and hopefully get into startup mode by spring of 2015. When I said, when we did Perme Ethos, we were going to shake the establishment to its core and we were going to change the way America produces and consumes food from the backyard to the massive field, this is what I meant. I am not jerking around here. I'm not messing around. I'm not going slow. I've backed up with this. Those of you that have followed it from the beginning know this. I've backed up where I had to. I've slowed down where I had to. But I've found every opportunity within what we're doing to magnify our results. So if you want to help get Permaethos off the ground, take our PDC. If you want a business of your own and you want to have our brand associated with your brand and you want to go in either plant propagation nursery type of thing or honey production, make sure you take our PDC so that you can take these two courses that we'll be following. There's other opportunities like this. I don't see us saying, okay, you can produce chickens under our brand you know, in your backyard. Yet, there may be some ways, stuff like that, but that's way, I'm punting the football into year three for stuff like that. There's some ideas we have that could take the ethos farm down to the small acreage. We need the big acreage satellite large scale producers first. We need that. Um, we have to showcase some things, we have to prove out some things, and we have to create regional diversity. But, regional diversity? In a plant propagation and bee business, I think that is something that we can go much faster with working with small individuals. And let's face it, a person with an acre can have a hell of a lot of bees. A hell of a lot of bees. And a person with an acre can put in a pretty big nursery. Anyway, those are just the first two. There's already a third one that we're considering. I don't know if the guy that approached us is the right guy to do it with. We'll have to evaluate that. But when we came up with this, we're like, well, we can't do it with everything. So maybe these are the only two niches. And like the week we said that, pff, here's another one. So Permaethos is rocking. Joe and Kevin and Charlie are on the farm right now. I think Darby's on his way to go to the farm. Uh, Joe just spent a week with Darby at Darby's place uh, getting some consulting on how to set up the initial livestock. Uh, we are rolling now. Jesse Tegmeyer will be joining Josiah on the farm as one of our, uh, you know, our, our tenant farmers very soon. Uh, if you want to put in an application to either be a woofer, which is basically a wampfer is what we're calling it, a volunteer worker to go there and work for a couple weeks and learn. Or if you want to be considered as another tenant farmer, I don't think we've found our second one yet. Get over to permaethos.com and fill it out. If you're not sure what permaethos is, Hey, go to permaethos.com. You can see the full history of how we got where we are there. All right, so cool. That's done. Next up, I want to add something about comfrey. Uh, last week I did a show on herbs, perennial herbs, and I talked about comfrey and how I personally feel, and this is my opinion, I am not a master herbalist and I am not qualified to give you advice on your health or medical care. Okay, This is my opinion, my opinion, my opinion. One more time, my opinion. But I said that I think that the government is full of shit about comfrey. And it has very low risk associated with its use in, in moderation internally. And these PAs, these alkaloids that are dangerous that can damage the liver, are not in sufficient quantities unless the, the, the comfrey is used in ex, like ridiculous amounts you would never eat. Okay, 
So somebody sent me an email and said, you ignored this study. Like, I know every freaking study that's ever been done on comfrey. And it, it's, he said, the, these rats were only fed 2% of their diet, Jack. Two, just 2% of their diet, and they got liver cancer, and none of the controls did. So then I read the study, and that's not quite the truth, but it does point a big, giant, gaping hole in what I told you. First of all, Rats in this study in both the control group and the comfrey-fed group had different mutations within the liver that lead to eventual cancer. In the study, I didn't see any reporting of actual cancers developed, just the precursor markers of cancers. In some instances, some of the mutations were larger in the rats that were not fed comfrey, And some were in the rats that were fed comfrey. But in the totality, yes, the comfrey did increase the occurrence of cancerous, precancerous mutations. Okay? There was no doubt that the PAs, the alkaloids in this, were likely the culprit that damaged the rat's liver. And yes, by volume, the rats were only fed 2% of their diet in comfrey. And the study was 12 weeks or 16 weeks or something like that. <sighs> But here you go. What was the guy's name? The rest of the story guy. I can't think of his name now. I loved him. The old guy. He passed away not too long ago. Anyway, and now you know the rest. Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. Okay. So here's the Paul Harvey rest of the story. Well, I read this, and it turns out the rats were not fed comfrey leaf. They were fed roots. So I'm going to stop right here and tell you the whole in my advice to you. Don't eat comfrey root. Don't eat comfrey root. Don't eat comfrey root. Okay. That I completely agree with. The PAs, the alkaloids that cause these problems in the roots, are generally as high as 0.4 or more percent in the root. Four-tenths of a percent of the total root are these PAs. Okay, The leaf, generally 0.02%. That is two hundredths of 1% versus four-tenths of 1%. Got it? Two-hundredths versus four-tenths. Massive, massive difference. Now, this is where the rest of the story gets really interesting. So I, I'm reading this. I said, it's a little concerning. Well, you read it, and you find out that they were using a dried root. Now, anybody that knows anything about herbs just in cooking knows that if, an, if a recipe calls for a tablespoon of fresh herb, And you put in a tablespoon of dry herb, you will ruin the recipe. That it's, it's just not possible for you to do that and not have a, a, a negative result, so to speak, because the, the potency is at least doubled. At least doubled. In some cases, it's four or five times more in a dried versus a fresh herb. Now, with root, not quite as much, okay? Root, by volume, does not shrink anywhere near to the level leaves do, but at least double, at least double. So now 2% of their diet becomes 4% of their diet by potency of the herb. You got it? This is like, you know, we'll only gave a little bit of this herb, but I actually made it out of a great big pile that was extracted with alcohol. Well, obviously the potency is higher. So they took dried root, they ground it up, and they put it into the rat's food and fed the rats this stuff. When, we, when I do the math, To get the same amount of PAs based on the root, you would have to have eaten at least, and this is like totally devil's advocate here, 80 leaves a day of comfrey. 80. Now, 
I, I want you to understand what I mean by totally devil's advocate. I'm assuming that a cough relief weighs a half an ounce when I come up with that number. I'm assuming a lot of things that make it worse to the side of error to get up to 80 leaves. When you make something like a comfrey tea, you generally use about like a tenth of a leaf worth of dried comfrey or fresh comfrey. You know, if anybody's ever looked at a comfrey leaf, it's pretty big. It doesn't weigh a half ounce that I gave it credit for. Even a quarter ounce, right? It's not close, but it's, it's a pretty big leaf. Well, you don't use a whole leaf to make a cup of comfrey tea. And most people that make comfrey tea would make like a comfrey chamomile lemon balm tea. It's only a component in the total system. Or you might eat a, a leaf or two steamed as a vegetable. You, you wouldn't eat it every day. And when I, when I looked up more places where we could find actual incidences of comfrey, I found one source that actually showed four places where people had problems due to known comfrey ingestion and they were all ridiculous they were like people that were drinking 10 cups of comfrey, comfrey uh, concentrated tea and a handful of comfrey pills a day or one guy that was like this binge guy that would like eat nothing but a vegetarian diet of two vegetables and then nothing but comfrey and then this and then so it was ridiculous to actually find anybody that they could show a causational link to this stuff but If you get into eating roots, I never said the PAs weren't dangerous or they weren't toxic. Of course they are. But the same toxic substance that's in destroying angel mushroom that will kill you dead as a doornail if you go out and chomp down a couple of destroying angel mushrooms, the exact same toxin exists. Do you know where? Those little white button mushrooms you buy in the grocery store? That toxin's in there. It's just in such small quantities that the body can deal with it. Right, So it's not that the PAs aren't dangerous. And by the way, PAs, these alkaloids, are in your general food. There's different things done with grains and, and corns and things today that cause the formation of these things, and they're in your food. So what I'm saying is a follow-up, no roots. No comfrey roots ingested, period. In my opinion, the leaves used in moderation pose no health risk, and no scientific evidence exists to support the claim that it does. But... Again, I'm not a qualified master herbalist. I am not a qualified health practitioner. These are my opinions. They are not recommendations. And I suggest you do your own research and make your own decisions about that. The selling of comfrey for internal ingestion in any form is illegal in the United States of America because we don't live in a land of freedom. Okay? I'm sad. All right. Next, before I get to your first call, and I know this is going a long, long, long day, 30 minutes in, um, but I just have a cute story for you guys. Um, I have a new member of our homestead, an unofficial member. A member of my homestead is any creature, human or otherwise, that lives here to the point where they become recognizable and I know them. And I see them on a regular basis and they're kind of part of the family or part of the team. Like the chickens and the geese and the ducks and the dogs are, are homestead family members. There's a few wild critters that hang around that I've gotten to a point where I can recognize one opposing the other. I've got a great big turkey vulture. He's back. He comes, I guess, every year because it's the second year in a row. I call him Hole in the Wing because he's got a hole in his wing about the size of a softball. Where it looks like somebody took a crack shot at him or something and knocked a couple feathers off right where his wing joins his body. It's very obvious that it's him versus all the other vultures. But he's not really a member because I just see him overhead. He doesn't hang out in the yard. Uh, I've got a rabbit that I'm pretty sure is the same rabbit all the time uh, until Charlie, you know, ends his reign, which will probably happen sooner or later because Charlie's pretty good at catching bunnies. But I also have a snake now. 
I'm going to name this snake. I'm naming him Speedy. He's a yellow racer. And I'm naming him Speedy because he is the fastest damn snake that I have ever seen. Anybody that knows the show over time knows I am a huge enthusiast with reptiles. Um, I am no threat to a snake's life unless there's really, really good cause, which I've never seen but once, where it was actually necessary for me to take the life of the snake. Um, venomous or otherwise, I generally will not kill a snake if I don't have to. Um, this is a yellow racer. He is completely harmless. He cannot hurt you. And I call him Speedy because he runs like hell. Uh, what's unique about this snake, though? is he has gotten to be where I see him every day. And I've watched him. He was hanging out in my greenhouse. Then he was on the other side of my barn. Then he was down at the beginning of the food forest. Today he was in the middle of the food forest. So maybe he'll migrate off my property, which we're about to bring um, a bunch of new chicks and uh, ducklings onto the property. And he is a threat to them for their first couple of weeks of life. He's not that big a snake, but he's big enough to take a young chick or a young duck. If he goes over where the chickens and the geese are right now, he's dead meat. They will kill him dead. But what's, I, I like to catch these guys. And, and frankly, with the soon-to-be arrivals, if I catch him, he's going to take a couple-mile ride down the road and be released in a woodlot just for the safety of the babies. Um, and I will just grab him. I'm not going to try to pin his head down. I'm not afraid. If he bites me, I don't care. It's no big deal. Uh, the geese bite me, and they can bite a lot harder than this little guy can. Uh, he's probably two and a half feet long. I've got to where I, I, I find him first by hearing him moving in this dry grass because we've had no rain for so long. And I'll see him, and when I go to grab him, he's just too fast for me. It, and this is why he gets away. And there's a le survival lesson in this for you. Usually the reason I can catch a racer, a yellow racer, a black racer, coach whip snake, something like that, any of these uh, very fast-moving whip-like snakes, the neural snakes, the neural means during the day, Uh, sight hunting snakes is because they will run until they feel aggressed on and then they will hold their ground. They will puff up. They will hiss. They will fake rattle their tail. They'll put their tail down on the leaves and they'll rattle it like a rattlesnake. They'll strike at you. They'll hiss at you. They're just kind of bitchy little snakes, right? And because they do that, that gives you the opportunity to snag them, to grab them. And if they're a big one, you might not want to get bit. You might have to think about how to handle them or whatever to get them in, into control. But you get a chance to get them, not Speedy. Speedy's like, I'm not fighting, I'm running. And Speedy, who I've now seen eight times, has avoided capture. And generally speaking, I am a good 60 to 70% of capturing a snake if I see it. If I see a snake... Even with trying not to make sure I don't hurt it or anything, or larger snakes, making sure I don't get bit, generally six to seven out of ten I catch. Speedy, I'm up to almost double digits on, on seeing with zero captures because Speedy knows to run away and hide. I'm not suggesting that we run away and hide, but I'm suggesting there's times when you are outnumbered by superior force or out strength. The, the, the force is, is, is out of, out of balance. And there are times to withdraw. That's a lesson from Speedy the Snake. And after all of that, here's your first call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is John from Tennessee, but really from New York. I was going to ask you a question about GMO ingredients in making your own ethanol. I guess my... Uh, Questions more about a grid down scenario where you would be utilizing the ethanol for medicinal purposes, also known as human consumption. 
I was wondering if you use, if you source GMO ingredients, if the GMO stuff, the residue, the bad things that are about the GMO, the acid, the uh, poisons that they soak these these products in or contained in these products uh, come through on the other side in the ethanol. Um, I guess that's my uh, main concern. And also, what would you do with the wash that's left over after you distill? You know, there's some leftover product there, and you have some, I'm imagining there's some GMO stuff in there. Uh, If it was clean, would you compost it? Would you just kind of put it right on the bed? Um, Thanks again, and hope to hear from you soon. Look forward to your answer. Well, I think that's the same John that uh, I met at Perma, uh, Permaculture Voices in California. And if so, guys, if you need somebody to come do a great job as a Gary Vaynerchuk impersonator, this guy would be the man. I mean, uh, he, he walked up on stage to take over and, and help out with some audio issues. I actually thought he, uh, that uh, he had been hired out there because of the way he took charge. But he was just because it's what he does for a living, the audio stuff. He was just helping out, like randomly volunteering. And for like two-tenths of a second, I'm like, what's Gary Vaynerchuk doing here? Anyway, uh, if that's you, John, and I think it is based on your voice, um, good, to, good to hear from you. GMO grain in making ethanol, will anything remain of the residue? Um, I wouldn't over-worry about it, and I'll give you a couple different ways to look at this. Number one, I can take water that is plumb full of stuff that will kill you dead. And I can distill it, and the resulting distilled water will be safe to drink. So we know there's a huge purifying, cleansing effect when we burn water off as water vapor. When we burn off ethanol, we're actually heating the temperature lower than that which will boil water. And we're getting some water with it, but mostly just ethanol or alcohol. Now, the more times we run wash through a still, the higher the percentage of alcohol, the lower percentage of water, the more pure alcohol we end up with. I think when you're in that state, you're dealing with a different molecule than you started out with with a grain of corn. And the odds that any significant amount of GMO remains is not really worth worrying about. Okay, Now, let's, let's address what's not being said. So John goes out of his way to say, hey, uh, you know, the dogs and cats having puppy kittens apocalypse has come, and we're using it for medicinal purposes, uh, shit is at the fan, etc. If If we're there, and I have no food, and you give me 10 sacks of GMO deer corn, I would use it for food. I would not eat that today. I would not suggest that you do. And I would store something else so that I don't end up with that decision to be made. But I'm telling you, as much as I'm opposed to GMOs, for so many reasons, and if you want to know why, go find somebody that raises animals on genetically modified grain and someone that refuses to feed it to their animals. And go see them on a day that you're going to slaughter. And look at the liver, look at the kidneys, cut the stomach open and look at the lining of the stomach, and look at the pericardium around the heart. And look at a healthy animal that has not been fed GMOs, an animal that's been fed GMOs side by side, and you will never question the, the issue again. I, I swear to God, you will ne- you will never doubt it. Okay, so let's say that 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 is the case, and you when we get into this whole issue though of 
you know, surviving and not surviving. I'd rather eat GMO than not eat at all. Just, just to be perfectly clear on that. Okay. So I'm going to read into this that somebody might make some ethanol for some medicinal purposes when the shit has not hit the fan and just doesn't want to say that. Okay. Got it. So somebody might be making a little, little shine and might say, Hey, that deer corn is really cheap. So is that a good source? And would I use that today? Probably not. Probably not. And I'll tell you why. Too many other things that are just as cheaper, cheaper, that I don't have to worry about it at all. Um, there's no GMO barley. There's no GMO wheat. So if I need a grain source of starch, I could use either one of those, and I can get that cheap. Um, pesticide residuals, just as big a concern there, though. Um, so... I, again, though, the, the distillation process is pretty extensive to the elimination of toxins, so wouldn't over-worry about it. And again, when you're making ethanol, if you put it back through the still multiple times, you increase the proof higher and higher and higher. The purer the product, the less of any toxin is going to remain. And well, you know, you say you distill it up to like 170, 180 proof. I don't want medicinal alcohol that's that high. You dilute it with water. You dilute it back down with distilled water. And you end up with a very, very clean, very pure, very high-end vodka at that point. But the truth is you can make that product from, from sugar. As far as I know, there's no GMO sugar cane yet either. Um, you could do that with, with barley. Uh, a lot of shine makers call that a scotch, but that's not what makes a, a liquor a scotch. You can do it with fruit. A lot of shine makers call that a brandy, and that's not what makes a liquor a brandy. But it's used as common terminology uh, in, in the shine making community. But really, the production of alcohol is simply the fermentation of sugar into ethyl alcohol and then the further distillation down. I need to remind you that this is illegal in all forms in the United States of America, except for the production of fuel, unless you have a permit uh, to do so, or if you're a license to distill alcohol for the purpose of actual consumption. But when you heat water that's mostly fermented sugars and it's got alcohol in it, the stuff that comes out at the end is ethyl alcohol, and the rumors that you'll go blind and die are greatly exaggerated, but... I leave it to you to make your own decisions there. But GMO produced alcohol, especially distilled. Would I worry about it? Not heavily, but I would avoid it in the here and now if possible. If you're using it for fuel, I wouldn't give a damn. Anyway, next question. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Donovan from Portland. Uh, love the show. Um, got a question about chickens, specifically chicks. Um, there's a lot of conflicting information out there on the net about what you can and cannot give them to eat, or, or even chickens for that matter, as far as scraps. Um, everybody seems to be saying something different. Um, what are your opinions on chicks, uh, what, what you can give them and when, and chickens as far as scraps, um, what you definitely should not give them? Okay, I would appreciate it um, and look forward to it. your answer. Thanks, Jack. There is a lot of conflicting information about what you can feed chickens on the Internet, and the reality is if everything that they say killed a chicken, killed a chicken, there'd be a lot more dead chickens in the world. 
or maybe a lot less chickens in the world would be a way to look at that. Uh, I've even read blog posts by one person who seems like they had a pretty cool, cool blog, so I actually responded in their comments, and they weren't interested in hearing it, that if your chickens eat acorns, the tannin will kill them and they will die. And uh, I pointed out that in the 1930s, the farmers, by and large, were feeding chickens acorns because the chestnut blight was already at its height, and it was hard to get chestnuts, and it was one cheap source of fodder, and that they were specifically feeding them white acorns, which have a lower tannic value. And chickens just won't eat that much acorn where the tannic, will be a pro tannic acid will be a problem because they don't like You know, the, and it just didn't go over, and the person just like, you don't know what you're talking about, and whatever stupid-ass crap uh, you deal with from people that have already made up their mind and are not open to facts. Facts are just disinterested to them. So, you know, acorns, so this, this, the reason I even posted a response here is because if you read this and you were a new chicken keeper and you had oak trees, you'd be freaking out. Like, you think you need to go in and rake all the acorns up, least your chicken, eat one, and fall over and die. And I can tell you that chickens, by and large, don't really want acorns, uh, but they will get into the ones, especially with weevils and things like that. And I mean, the lower tannic the acid that they have, the bigger white acorns, they're more likely to eat some, especially if they're already cracked open by a squirrel or broken in some way or, again, infested. So that's a, just an example of what you're talking about. I've seen don't feed them this, don't feed them that, don't feed... Here's how I've always looked at it. If I would eat it, a chicken will eat it. Unless it's citrus or onion or, or anything in the allium family. Uh, they don't seem to like onions, garlic, things like that. That doesn't mean you can't throw it out with them because they'll scratch it into the ground anyway. They're just not going to eat it. And they don't like citrus. And they won't eat, they won't touch citrus peel. And again, it's something that they probably shouldn't be fed, but they're not going to probably eat it unless it's the only thing that's out there. Um, so when it comes to scraps, If I will eat it or I would have eaten it, let's say it's kind of gone off a little bit or something like that or, or what have you, it goes to the chickens. If we go out to eat now, we have leftovers, even stuff we know we're not going to eat, goes to the chickens. And I don't worry about it. My chickens are very happy and very healthy. I think that has a lot to do with the fact, though, that my chickens are kind of in a hybrid design with how they're allowed to graze. They have a pretty large area. I'd say it's about a 20th to a 10th of an acre, somewhere in there, <coughs> where they are allowed to range freely every day up till about 2 or 3 o'clock. And at that point, and they can get back in their house from there, at that point I open up the other side of the chicken house, and they have a full acre they can range on. So they're currently scratching in hay with horse manure that the neighbor drops. They're eating grasshoppers. They're eating weed seeds. They're eating any bugs they can catch. And they have, and they get really good, high quality, non-GMO, non-soy chicken feed plus scraps. And I think that's part of why they're so healthy. And when we occasionally butcher one, the the just when you look at when you butcher an animal, the number one indicator to how healthy that animal is its liver. And anybody that butchers animals regularly will tell you the same. That when you look at a liver, you can look at the kidneys, you can look at the heart, you can look at the stomach lining, but the liver is like the canary in the coal mine. And when you have a big, beautiful liver that's not laden with fat, and it just looks fresh, and when you cut it in half, it's the same uniform color all the way through. And it's and you just know that it's healthy looking. You know you've got a healthy animal. Our animals are healthy. Their pericardiums are beautifully clear in the fluid. They're not they don't have congestive heart failure like I've seen with animals that are fed bad diets and things like that. So to me, that's the way to do it. It's just a rounded diet for the animal and having enough 
choice that the animal will eat what it wants and will choose not to eat certain things in excess because it has other options. I think the most important thing personally for me to make sure that my chickens have access to are insects. You know, when you see the chickens advertise 100% pure vegetarian diet, there's only one way you can guarantee that to a consumer. Confine the chicken. Do you realize that? There's no way you can let a chicken outside for even a tenth of a second and guaranteeing it's a vegetarian diet because chickens are not vegetarians, vegans. They're not vegetarians. They're not meant to be vegetarians. Chickens are predators. Chickens are predators. I've had this beautiful feed that I feed these birds. It's made up with, with peas and peanut and cracked wheat and cracked sorghum. It's, it's a gorgeous feed. They love it. When I throw that stuff out, they go haywire. I've put some out for them. I've had them come flying over there. And if one of them sees a grasshopper, That bird will stop eating that stuff and tear off after that grasshopper. That grasshopper is far more valuable to that bird as a food source. So making sure they have a good insect protein source, I think, is, is key. But I don't sweat what they can and can't have. If you go to forums like Backyard Chickens, the only word I can use to describe the way some of these people are with their freaking chickens is teacup chickens. I mean, they worry about, oh, no. You see these posts, oh, no, don't do that. The poor chicken. Uh, it's a chicken. It's a bird. We take good care of our animals, but we don't stress over it. So I wouldn't stress. Now, chicks versus chickens. Baby chicken, adult chicken. What you generally hear is don't give scratch to young birds because they can't handle it. I agree to a point. I say by the time the bird is fully feathered out, And you observe the behavior of them picking grit and filling their crop. They can handle seeds, whole seeds. <gasps> no, they're too little. Well, they're bigger than all the birds that come here and eat seeds out of the bird feeder at that point. So, to me, once they're, once they're feathered out and they're, they're, they're foraging for themselves, they're eating bugs, they're picking grit, they're scratching well... I'll feed them a little bit of scratch. I don't feed them a lot of scratch because it's not as nutritionally valuable as the, 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 the chick feed or even the, you know, the, I tell you one of the things they love, cantaloupe. When you, when you clean a cantaloupe, you just get the rinds with a little bit of cantaloupe that's left there and the seeds and the pulp of the cantaloupe, they go crazy on that. Stuff like that's very, very valuable to them because it diversifies their diet. But don't stress over it. Don't worry about it too much. And... The one thing that I've seen that I or have been told of that, that does give me pause is John Dowie from New Hampshire told me that his wife fed the chickens like a whole bunch of like a bean, leftover beans like a, to a mush, and a couple of them died. And that may have been just from so much of a mush that they basically clogged their systems up or something like that. So I'd say don't go too much of any one thing, but it's hard for me to believe that, that there's like you know, refried beans or something like that are dangerous for chickens. We feed them to ours all the time. We just don't feed them. I think she fed like, they had like a pot that was just like a whole pot of beans and they, she put the whole pot out there because it had gotten old or something like that and a couple birds ended up dead. And there's no guarantee that's what killed them. But I can see how something that pasty might have impacted their bowels or something like that and caused an obstruction or a problem. So I think that, that is handled with variety and moderation of any one thing. If you have a huge amount of any one thing, what I advise you to do is break it up in four or five segments and feed it to them daily. Don't feed it all at once. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. 
Jack, hello. This is uh, Rich from Nebraska, and uh, today the uh, U.S. Federal Election Commission has approved Bitcoin for political contributions. So I thought that was a good piece of information that uh, you and the listeners would enjoy. As always, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Uh, isn't that interesting? Bitcoin, it's, it's, it's only for illegal people. It's for drug smuggling and terrorists and blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, you'd like to contribute to Congressman Jackass? Yeah, you can do that with Bitcoin. It's okay. We said it's okay. And, and Congressman Jackass apparently will take it. Who is Congressman Jackass? I don't know. Get the congressional rolls and put them up, list up on the wall and throw a dart and when it hits one, that probably will qualify as Congressman Jackass. But, um, I just think it's interesting that after, the, uh, you know, almost a full half year, five months of slander. And remember, in early January, I came out and I said this will be the year of the Bitcoin slander campaigns. That they will be in TV shows, in the news, they will go full court press on Bitcoin. And it started the day after I said it. And it, it just got built up more and more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, you know, five months into it, Well, that's really not working very well. Um, something that took, you know, almost three years to attain dollar parity is still trading at over $400 to one Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it came down off its high and things like that, but, um, you know, it's, it's still sticking around and it's, it's frankly doing better than, you know, the stock market frankly is and things like that. So we haven't been able to make it go away. Um, so you saw the IRS come out a few months ago and issue tax guidance on it and basically said, here's how you pay taxes if you use it. And it's a, it's kind of a mess the way that they want it done, but it also leaves open the ability for people to create either software generated solutions or people to take losses if they choose to. Um, and it, there'll have to be further clarification and guidance because what they've asked for is unreasonable. And it can't be done, and they can't decipher what they're asking you to do, so they can't actually hold you accountable to it, and they'd probably just rather, like, have their money, please, which is what they really want, their taxes on it. Um, so then all of a sudden you have the Federal Elections Commission saying, oh, if you want to contribute to congressman whatever, or senator whatever, or potential senator, or potential mayor, or anybody that's running for political office with Bitcoin, that's okay, you can do that. So here's what I'm predicting. The corner's been turned, and you'll still hear some slander about Bitcoin because they've, they've generated it, but the people at the, the, the wheel of the ship have realized it's not going to go away. Um, I'm predicting you're going to see virtual currencies released by at least two major nations. When I say major nations, I mean nations of size and scope that it will get the world's attention, right? You know, not, not some third-tier African nation or something like that, recognized financial powers in the world release virtual currencies in the next 18 months to one year or less, or 18 months to two years or less. Um, more broad, wide-scale acceptance of virtual currencies. Um, and the next move will now become what everybody's always warned about, an attempt by the establishment to co-opt, if not Bitcoin, the concept of virtual currency. That that's where we're going next. So fighting it didn't work. Let's co-opt it, right? So like the Tea Party, the Tea Party came out and the Republican Party went, man, this is not good, but uh, we'll just co-opt it and make it like it's us. There's a bunch of people pissed off about too much government, too much taxes, something Republicans are pretty good at doing, 
And uh, so the Republican Party just made made the Tea Party about the, you know being a Republican, and it didn't work really well. I think it actually destroyed the Tea Party. Um, with virtual currencies, the jury's out, but they're not going away. <laughs> they're not going away. They're not going to disappear. They're not going to go away. Um, in many ways, they're a better way to do business economically and financially. Um, they're they're better for privacy. And when the government says, well, we can't figure out what everybody's doing with their money, I think the response from the general public needs to come back with a loud thunderous, good. Why the hell do you think you need to know everything that we're doing with our money? Well, so we can tax you on it. You know, I thought the income tax was supposed to be voluntary. Do you know that the income tax is supposedly voluntary? Do a little research on that. Anyway, I just think it's interesting that uh, Bitcoin is now accepted by the Federal Elections Commission. Look for more acceptance. Now that the slander campaign has seemed to peter out and not work very well. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from New Jersey. Um, this question is about my chickens eating their eggs. Uh, now that the spring has come, I have been able to let my chickens out in the wild a little bit better, but uh, my egg production has plummeted. seems that my chickens are eating their own eggs or laying them elsewhere and then eating them. Uh, any ways to prevent this or uh, suggestions on how I can save my eggs? Thank you very much. Love the show. Have a great day. Well, in my last uh, chicken question, in fact, there were so many chicken questions this week, I, I, I kind of pushed a couple of them into next week because there were so many chicken questions. It was like a chicken hour if I had answered them all. I, don't, I guess there's a lot of chicken activity right now. Um, but you'll notice in my other chicken question, I stated that my birds until like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon are held into this smaller area. And then they're released out. And this is why. This time of year, all of a sudden, they decide they want to lay eggs everywhere except in the coop. Well, if they're inside this area that's pretty easy to sweep, it's it's not hard to find the eggs. And um, if they're out on the full acre with all these different places that they can hide, uh, it can be difficult, if not impossible, to find the eggs. So this time of year, it tends to be the chickens start to get a little bit more um, less religious in putting their egg ritually in the same places and get a little bit more tending to lay their eggs elsewhere. Um, it's also the case that during major temperature swings that birds will often stop laying. That doesn't mean that they won't lay in the summer uh, or even lay consistently in the summer. Certain breeds actually do really well in hot weather and some even do well in cold weather. But the initial change in temperature or in daylight hours being radical will often throw their egg cycle off. So you'll see birds that are in high productivity drop and then over time pick back up because it's not a part it's not like some birds you go into winter you don't have much daylight if you don't create some artificial light not only just production taper off it stays tapered off and for you know until you get back into spring where you put artificial lighting in it'll taper and then come back up but i've noticed personally going all the way back to when i was a kid and used to get eggs every day you know for my grandmother that when you had a you know that that spring to summer change that, that sometimes the, the, the summer to fall, but not usually, but the fall to winter change, and then like the midwinter depth when it drops to that really cold, slow, low, you know, light hour days, that each of those times you see egg production come off for a couple weeks, and then as the birds adjust, kind of come back up. 
So that's a natural cycle that I've observed. I can't prove whether it's true or not, but it's what I've observed. And talking to other poultry owners, it's what they seem to uh, observe as well. So there's that in the cycle. Now, egg eating. Let me say something that some people are going to get pissed off about. There's no such thing as a chicken that doesn't eat eggs. Okay? Well, I've never had a chicken eat eggs. Break an egg in front of your chickens. Take an egg, throw it on the ground for you. They will tear the... They love eggs. Okay? What's actually rare is a chicken that eats an egg that hasn't been broken. Okay? So, there's two things going on here. Okay? One or the other, most likely. One is, where are your birds laying? We have some boxes for our birds, and they have a wood floor. And the birds constantly, for some reason, remove the straw from them so there's a flat wooden surface. And as that bird's laying the egg, right before the egg comes out, she lifts her butt, and that egg will fall onto the wood, and sometimes it'll get a little crack in it or a little hole in it. A lot of times it doesn't matter. You can, if you use that egg right away, it's not a good egg for storing or trying to hatch at that point. But you could use that egg like today or tomorrow, and it's fine. But you'll see a little dimple in it. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger of a crack, and it starts to ooze out. When that happens, they eat it. So I would first look at where are they laying the eggs. And if, if they're laying the eggs with a hard surface, go to the store and get some sort of a rubber padding, like a, like a rubber padding that you would put like uh, in a cabinet, that type of a rubber padding or like rubber mat for flooring or something like that and cut a piece that fits the bottom and put that in there so that when she does a little butt lift at the end, the egg hits something soft and doesn't crack. That may in of itself solve your problem. Also, don't assume just because you can't find the eggs that they're being eaten. If you're not finding like egg residue somewhere, it's not probably, you know, because if you're finding like some egg residue where the birds usually lay and a few pieces of shell, they're probably eating them. The other thing is you might have a bona fide egg-eating chicken. And once she cracks that egg open, pecks into it and gets it open, then the other ones will dogpile on and eat the egg. They generally don't eat an egg that's closed. They generally only eat an egg once it's been fractured. If you have that problem, my suggestion is curry, as in chicken curry. I'm serious. Um, it would be worth observing your birds, identifying the culprit, hanging her upside down, bleeding her out, and using her to make curry or cacciatore or soup or stew or fried chicken or grilled chicken or something like that. If, you have, if, you, if egg production is important to you and you have a bird that's eating eggs, eat the bird. I'm dead serious. It's easier than trying to fix the problem. Chickens are food. And it would be much easier to get a few new chicks and expand your flock and decrease your flock by the actual egg. Just make sure you're, 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 you're convicting the guilty party. All right? Because just because you saw a chicken eat an egg doesn't mean she's the egg destroyer. She's just an egg eater. All right? And all chickens eat eggs. Again, if you doubt this, when your chickens are all out pecking around, take an egg, throw it on the ground, and break it. And that does not necessarily encourage birds to eat eggs. Because we, you know, we'll get an egg and we look at it, it's cracked open. I found it like in the back corner somewhere, and I don't know how long it's been there. Pfft, let the birds eat it. We never have a problem with that. Um, I don't have a problem with birds being egg eaters, but I will tell you, they lay, lay behind the door, and there's a nice little soft spot back there, and those eggs are always fine. And the two laying boxes I have set up, I need to take my own advice and put some kind of liner in those. I've I've often found those eggs eaten. 
but I know why. It's not because they're egg-eating chickens. It's because I found also plenty that have been cracked by the impact of what they're landing on. So if you have eggs that you know are being consumed, check the area where they're laying. The other place we've had them crack a lot of eggs, we used to let them just free range. We have a potting bench, and the potting bench is covered with metal. And for some reason, they just like to sit up on top of that potting bench and open and lay eggs. And every time they laid on that bench with that metal surface, they, it put a little dimple crack. Like It looked like somebody took a, like the a size of a pencil eraser and made a divot in the egg. And if that divot is sufficient for that egg to start running out, it gets their attention. Once they taste what's inside of it, they start pulling it apart. But I, I, I've actually found that very few birds really eat intact eggs. The occasional rogue that does, curry. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is W2. Hey, I had a permaculture from the mouth of babes story for you. My eighth grade daughter was applying for a marriage scholarship for her high school years. And uh, part of that was having an interview in front of adults. And she's a very science-oriented person, and she totally spaced uh, one of the questions. I had just made her listen to several hours of the uh, building a food forest show, and so she launched into a big permaculture uh, explanation. In the end, she actually got twice the amount of the marriage scholarship uh, that anybody else did, so that was a, a fabulous application. Also wondering uh, if I'm going to put some swales uh, in, but then I can't really get around to planting things until maybe the next year. Uh, what should I plant to kind of cover those over, like a clover-type thing or anything like that? Um, this is a northern Ohio area. Thanks, Jack. Well, when some of you guys ask why I'm so big on permaculture and, and insinuate that permaculture is nothing but planting trees and you don't need trees, uh, first of all, you need trees, and second of all, this is why. So what you have as a person in a stressful situation, especially for a kid. I mean, most adults, if you put them on the spot and say you're going to have to answer a, a series of questions uh, that are complex and you're being judged on the output, they, they get nervous. I don't because I don't care, but... Um, most people do. And for children, it's kind of magnified. So you put somebody in that situation. You ask them a question that they do know the answer to. And that's probably the case. It's like, when you say somebody's space, that's like, you ask somebody a question and they skip a beat in their mind and then blank. And then at that point, no matter how hard you try, no matter how well you actually know the answer, it won't come back. It just won't. We've all had that experience where it, it's something that you could have answered a hundred times or somebody asks you a question. You're in the middle of answering it. They ask you an adjunctive part of the question before you complete your thought, and the piece that was most important is gone now. And generally you have to sit back and think, what the... And you can't even remember where you were going with it. It's, it's, it's a tough situation to be in. But you're in a situation now where you do know the question. You know the question. You know the textbook answer. You can't recall the textbook answer. And you follow back to permaculture principles, follow back to permaculture principles. And you analyze the question as though you've never heard it before, as though you didn't know the answer. And the answer is so good. It sounds so well thought out that it's rewarded higher than the textbook answer. That's permaculture. Here's why. The answer sounded thought out because it was. But the key is this young gal thought it out as she answered it. 
That's what I'm doing on the air many times for you guys. I don't have a script. I haven't pre-screened the stuff to the point where I've been thinking about your question for days or whatever. I listen to the question. I analyze the question as I answer it. Does that mean sometimes I'll get some of it wrong? Sure. But it also means I'll do far better at dissecting, analyzing, and creating a response that will be actionable and make the people on the other side of the microphone think. That's what this gal did, and kudos to her. Now, your swell question. Maybe you should ask her. <laughs> She might give you a better answer, but here's here's the answer that I would give you. Yes, planet, period. Uh, seed is fine. It's getting a little bit hot, but where you at? You're, you're at in uh, in the Northeast. You're not going to have a problem putting seed down. I wouldn't plant any perennial grasses. Okay, here's why: big, thick, interlocking sod-style root systems. And next year, you want to plant 50 trees, and you're fighting your way through that heavy root system. So, uh, other than avoiding perennial grasses, plant what you can get your hands on. What works? Um, this is what I would personally do right now. Uh, the new freshly dug swales, you need organic matter, you need nitrogen. I would do a mix right now, primarily based on buckwheat and cowpea. The buckwheat will hit maturity in six weeks. Uh, it will be great for pollinating insects and start bringing a bunch of pollinating insects in. Uh, I would put some succession to perennials in there. Uh, I would look for chicory, plantain, medic, alfalfa, clover, stuff like that. And I would make that a third of the mix, and the other two-thirds I would split between buckwheat and cowpea, and I would go about two parts buckwheat to one part cowpea. Because the cowpea is going to last all summer, long, all summer long. It's not going to success out the way that the buckwheat will. At the end of the year, I would cut the cowpea, chop and drop it, uh, or if you have ducks or geese, if you let them in there, they will eat the hell out of cowpea leaves. They love pea leaves. Um, and I would go and I would put in a good... Winter mix, and I would probably do daikon, um, kaius oat, and that's, I've had people ask before, you know, what is, how do you spell it? C-A-Y-O-U-S-E, kaius oat, it's a white oat. So I'd probably do vetch, daikon, and kaius oat. You could put some other things in there, uh, some triticale or some weed or something like that in your winter mix. Winter pea would not be bad. It's going, winter pea will winter kill in your environment, but it'll get late into the winter before it does. And you will be in really great shape to plant in spring. I would also, though, advise you to seriously consider if you can get plants. Think about planting in fall. Fall planting with trees is not a bad thing. They get a little bit of root activity in. They go dormant and they, they break dormancy at the time of their own choosing in the spring. And they're well established late into the spring when the heat comes in summer. So you may want to consider getting some trees or bushes or stuff into a fall planting mode. Just don't go too late in the fall. It can have where there's not enough time for the tree to adjust and go into proper dormancy. But usually it's a great time for planting, early fall. It's cool out. There's not a lot of stress to the tree. And the tree does get some real time to establish its root system before you go into winter. It, it you know goes dormant. You give it a good pruning. That means that since it doesn't have leaves on it and it's been pruned back, when you get your winter winds, there's not a lot of resistance, so the tree doesn't get a lot of rocking back and forth, so it doesn't disturb the root system. So uh, that's just another little addition there. Anyway, kudos to your daughter, and uh, thanks for that call. Let's take another one. Jack, it's Matt from Vermont. Quick question about buying silver coins, not round. If you decide you want to buy coins, why would people not buy the Canadian Maple Leaf more than the American uh, 
Silver Eagle, Eagle given that the, the Maple Leaf has a $5 face value in his legal tender, whereas the Eagle is one. It seems to me to have a, a better kind of uh, insurance floor as to the minimum that that coin is ever going to be worth, $5 compared to $1. Uh, when you're buying them around 20 that's all a, a painful loss. But the point is, it does seem as a practical matter that one is an obvious choice over the other. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks a lot. Bye. I would have a really good answer for you if a terrible part of Obamacare didn't go away. But a terrible part of Obamacare did go away. Uh, that would require a 1099B to be filled out on all transactions of precious metal uh, in excess of $600. Because the reality is, and I can't find this now, but I know I've read it multiple times before, that you can trade up to 30 silver eagles a year with no tax consequences because they are considered U.S. currency. So when you go beyond 30, you're supposed to do your own 1099 on the auto system or something like that. I don't remember the exact particulars. But that piece of Obamacare and a lot of the things that went along with additional tax reporting that had no business being in Obamacare, even if you love Obama, if you have his picture you know, in your visor of your car so you can look at him every day and you worship at the foot of the Obamacare nightmare that's been committed for this country, even if that's you, there's no good reason for legislation about taxation. It has nothing to do with health care to be in a health care law. But it was, and it's one of the few things that was actually repealed. So that is now gone. When you do a transaction, though, and you sell silver or gold in certain forms, in most forms, the person who, who buys it from you, if a dealership, do this to a dealership, they issue you a 1099. They don't do it with American Silver Eagles. So that was going to be my answer to you. But then I looked deeper. And it turns out they also don't do it with Canadian maple leaves. I did not know that it wasn't done with Canadian maple leaves, and they're also not done with Austrian Philharmonic silvers. Those are your three silver forms of, of coin that are not subject to 1099 requirements. Now, that means that a Mexican Libertad would be. That means that uh, uh, Australian silver currency would be, even if they are actual currency. It's these three, and I don't know how the Austrian and the Canadian coin are part of that exemption, other than probably some rich people wrote it in for themselves. And it happens to be one of the few things rich people write in that, that, that actually benefits you as well. And I'm going to tell you what I'm not saying in a second, but let's just stick to what I am saying. With gold bullion... Here are the types of silver that or gold that are not requiring a 1099, no matter how much you sell. Okay, They're all minted by national governments. The Gold American Eagle, the Gold American Buffalo, and the Gold Austrian Philharmonics and related fractionals. None of those generate a 1099. So it's a private transaction. So what that means is when you sell those forms of currency, and I know I'm not answering your question yet, but this is actually very interesting. I didn't know this myself. When you sell those for forms of precious metal, there's no reporting. Now, there's also no reporting when you buy it. And it doesn't matter when you buy it. You can buy as much as you want of anything, and they don't do any reporting. There's no 1099 issued. That doesn't mean there's no record whatsoever of the transaction. All right? So, if you go in and you sell a whole bunch of silver and or gold, and they write you a check, that check is an electronic document that does track back to you that you receive that money. 
If you put that money in your bank account, it's a bank transaction. So I, one of the things I'm not saying is that you can go and sell $10,000 worth of silver or gold in any form and not generate any kind of proof that the transaction occurred. I am telling you this. If you walk into a store that's willing to pay cash and carry on silver and you sell them 50 silver eagles and they're willing to pay you cash money and walk out the door and not do any paperwork, for all intents and purposes, that transaction never happened, at least not with you attached to it. But if you're paid by check and you cash that check or execute that check into a deposit, you're creating some sort of a record that could come back to haunt you. So it's not 100% that there's no record whatsoever. Okay. Now let me add to this. I am not saying that it's legal to buy and sell silver and make money and not pay taxes on the gains. I'm saying I have reason to believe that you can do it with up to 30 silver eagles a year, but I can't find that anymore. I don't know where it went. I, I, I cannot find anything other than some arbitrary blog posts about it, nothing concrete. I am sitting right now on Liberty Metals Group's website, and it says flat out, if you sell a silver bullion in one of these three forms, Canadian Maple Leafs, American Silver Eagles, or Austrian Philharmonics, we do not give you a 1099. And if you sell us gold bullion in the form of American Gold Eagles, Gold Buffaloes, or Gold Austrian Philharmonics, and related fractionals, we don't give you a 1099. So there's a reasonable amount of transparency or of, of, uh, of privacy there. So my answer was going to be because you get that advantage with American Eagles, but not with Maple Leafs. But the truth is, as I tried to research and prove that, I don't just talk out of my ass. Whenever, even when I think I know, I try to find proof points. I found out it's not the case that Maple Leafs can do the same thing with. So why would anybody do it? It's U.S. currency versus a foreign currency, if that matters to you. I don't think it matters that much, and I don't have that great of an answer for you other than that. Gold, uh, silver eagles would be approved for use inside an IRA, and I'm not sure that Canadian Maple Leafs would, but I would never recommend physical metal in an IRA anyway. I don't think it makes sense. I think it's the dumbest thing in the world that you can do. Um, they, It is generally the case that you will be paid a little bit more for silver eagles when you sell them for cash than Maple Leafs. Just a little bit more, though, not a lot. Not enough to make a difference. I don't know. I here's what I think. I think you should buy what you want. Um, the the odds that silver will ever trade for less than five dollars an ounce again in 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 history is astronomically low. I I wouldn't make my decision based on that if the silver Canadian maple leaf was marked fifteen Canadian dollars. I would buy it all day long. Five bucks, you're going to have a hard time getting me to ever part with one of my silver coins for five Canadian or U.S. dollars, unless something really, really weird happens. So I guess you could make the case for it. It is five times the nationally backed value. But if you ever get to a point where silver is worth that little, We've got bigger problems. Something has gone really, really wrong with the currency real valuation or something like that. And frankly, I'd be sitting on the metal anyway. I would not be parting with it at that point. But you do make a valid point. I, I guess it makes sense. And if I said to somebody, what form of silver are you buying? And they said, I'm sticking to Maple Leafs because of this, I would. But I thought it would be interesting for everybody to know that those three forms of silver and gold, American Eagles, 
in silver, silver maple leaves in Austrian Philharmonics, and in gold, gold buffaloes, gold eagles, and gold Philharmonics. There's no 1099 when you sell them for now. Doesn't mean that loophole will never be closed, but that is the case right now. I thought you'd like to know that. Before we go on to another call, I'm going to play for you, now that we're talking about money, John Pugliano's call of the week. John has not stopped waiting for questions, and he started to just do uh, a little segment for us each week. And let's hear from John Pugliano, expert council member. Uh, I think this week is on job security. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth with some thoughts on the employment situation. This week, Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen commented on the job market, and she said there is considerable slack in the labor market. Now, this is five years into the recovery. This is after the Federal Reserve has put over $4 trillion on their balance sheet, and yet there's, this is still the, the weakest re jobs recovery in history. Uh, and the bottom line is that none of us can be relying on Washington or federal agencies to ensure our employment. We need to take responsibility and do this for ourselves. So I want you, if you're out there employed today working for someone, I want you to start acting like you're looking for a job even if you're not. Your future employment depends on it. We're in a different environment than we were 20 years ago. Uh, there is no implied employee, employer, loyalty, or relationship The only person that can be responsible for your career is you. So go out and start acting like you're looking for a job. Get a resume together. If you've never had one, create one. If you have one, go back and update it. Make sure it's current. Every three months at a minimum, update your resume. Get on LinkedIn. If you're not currently on LinkedIn, it's free. Put a profile out there. Put information about yourself. Use it to start networking. Uh, reintroduce yourself to old contacts, people you went to school with, people you used to work with. You need to expand that excellent reputation you have beyond your current company. You may be known throughout your company as a fantastic, talented employee. That's not good enough. You need to make sure people outside your company know that. So what do you need to do to go beyond that? Make sure you're working within your, your industry. Um, you know, Join trade groups. Uh, industry associations, get on a committee, uh, just get out and meet people, go to lunch with people. They can be, they can be colleagues, they can be uh, people above you, people below you in the organization. Just get out there and meet people. Get to know people in your industry, in your industry's supply chain. Know who your competitors are. Get out and know them by first name. Make sure they know who you are. Know your company's suppliers. Know the, know the companies that are supplying your competitors. Make sure they know who you are. Get out and talk to your customers. You also need to be working with recruiters. And I don't mean just calling them up, asking them if they have jobs. I mean just getting out there, knowing recruiters. It's very easy to do with the Internet. Find the, the top talented headhunters in your industry. Make sure they know who you are and you let them know you're serious by you helping them. Right now, you don't need a position, you don't need a job, but you want to know these headhunters, so you introduce yourself to them, and you provide them referrals. Give them people's names and human resources so that they can go out and find new positions that need to be filled. Let them know of good quality candidates to make their job easier so they can fill, so they can fill positions that they have open. And then that way, uh, when you're looking for a position, they will remember you and they will help you better than just somebody they receive a resume off the street. 
the bottom line here is that you need to know that no one is responsible for your job security but you. And your job security doesn't rest with your current employer, but rather it's your ability to be able to sell and market yourself for your future position. Better yet, start your own company, become an entrepreneur. But that's a topic for another day. For the Survival Podcast Expert Council, this is John Pugliano, Investable Wealth. Uh, great stuff from John, and I would I would add to that, if you are in a technical field, specifically in microwave, wireless, cellular, um, any type of high-end communications engineering, and you want good people to be in touch with, dataworkforce.com. Uh, Data Workforce is a company that I used to be a principal in. Uh, it was one of the companies I walked away from when I went to do uh, TSP full-time. Uh, they work only with the top 20% of talent in, in, in cutting-edge technology. Uh, but that is that is a place that I would make some friends as far as the recruiters over there. Check out the jobs that they have posted, apply, uh, get a resume over to them. The recruiters there are amazing, and you may be surprised, even if you're not looking for something, what they might come up with, especially for those of you that are contractors that like to take you know, three-month projects, six-month projects, where not only do you get to use the skills but get new experience and things like that, go to cool places. Um, data Workforce is awesome. Uh, as far as John's advice that you have to act like you don't have a job even when you do, uh, that would be advice I would have given you 15 years ago. Uh, I think it's just more true today than it ever was, but I think that that is good day-to-day advice. And you all, every single one of you out there, if you do not own your own business, you need to pretend that you do. You need to pretend that right now you have a client, that is your employer. You need to think that way, and you need to think about what would I do if I lost my client? How would I replace my client? And that mental switch is critical. Um, There is no loyalty anymore from companies of any size to their employees. There's a lot of loyalty from smaller companies. But in smaller companies, you get hit a lot more times with where you have to make a decision, and your loyalty to your employees means taking care of the ones you can take care of. What I mean by that is when I run companies, you know, 10, 20 employees, and I have to lay off 10%, 20%, 25% of my workforce, um, there's pretty good odds that you know you might be the one. If you think about that, 25% of 20 people is five. It's you know I'm and I'm gonna have I, and people say well you're not loyal to your employee. No, no. If I don't do this, then I have 15 other people that end up without a job. Um, there's some flexibility there. I've had situations where I had a small company, four employees, and I said, well, I can either let one of you go or everybody can take a 25% pay cut. Um, and they said, well, what about you? And I said, well, I've already taken a 40% pay cut to make this happen. Oh. Everybody looked at each other. Everybody liked each other. Everybody came back and said, well, how long would the pay cut be for? I said, right now it's planned at 90 days. It could be longer. I don't know. Depends on how well we can turn things around. Everybody took the pay cut. So sometimes you can do that, but you can't always do it. And whether you work for a large employer or a small employer, your job's at risk on a daily basis. Completely agree with John. Uh, before we go into the uh, the next call, I want to actually read a question to you. Uh, this came in not for the council, but when I read it, I decided to kick it over to Tim Glantz because he's perfect to answer this question. Uh, and here's the question I got. Jack, here's my question. Uh, 
My question is, how would I prepare waste motor oil to be used in a diesel engine as a fuel source? Some time ago, you had Tim Glantz on as an interview guest, and he briefly spoke about using motor oil as fuel source in older diesel engines. I'd like to begin using used motor oil as an alternative fuel. I have a late 80s Ford truck with a non-turbo 7.3 liter diesel engine. Also, um, <clears throat> also, can it be used motor oil mixed with used transmission fluid and or petroleum-based hydraulic fluid, or must it be motor oil? Thank you, Jack. And this is from Kurt. Uh, so with that in mind, let's hear from Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus on using waste motor oil and other fluids as alternative diesel fuel. Hey, Jack, this is Tim Glantz from the Expert Council calling in with an answer for Kirk, who wrote in about using waste motor oil for fuel in his late 80s Ford truck. Kirk, your 7.3-liter indirect injection engine is ideal for alternative fuels. In fact, I have one myself, and I found it can run up to about 65 to 75% waste motor oil in the warmer months with no modifications. Uh, using waste oil and the prep that goes into it is the same for other petroleum-based waste oils like hydraulic fluid and automatic transmission fluid, and they can all be mixed in the same way. Waste, waste vegetable oil is similar as well, but you don't want to mix them in your processing. is more sensitive to temperature, so uh, it's kind of a different subject. But sticking to that, there are two key ways in which you want to be fuel to be clean and dry. And by dry, I mean free of water that accumulates in the oil. First, if you're using your own waste oil, always change it after running the engine at operating temperature for at least 20 minutes to reduce the amount of moisture in it as moisture accumulates with condensation and every warm-up cool-down cycle. Next, store it in a cool, dry place until you're ready to use it, not outdoors in a barrel in the rain. There are several ways to clean the used motor oil, and if you Google waste motor oil filtering, many methods will be listed. I built a filter using household water filters, like you mount under your sink. I picked them up at the hardware store and an old surplus uh, water separator that came from some kind of, like, Navy tugboat. After I drain my oil, I dump it into a storage barrel through a funnel with a coffee filter. This gives my first level of filtration and also lets me inspect for any large debris that came from my engine uh, to check for any possible engine problems. Then I first let the oil sit in that barrel for a few days to let any water settle. That barrel has the spigot three inches above the bottom, so when I drain it from the spigot, it will drop from above any water that is settled. I mix it with diesel fuel, about 15-20% to thin it for easy filtering. Then I run it through th those three household filters one after another with a 25-micron, 10-micron, and 5-micron filter, followed by the water separator. Uh, I've got my surplus one, but a simple goldenrod type filter you can get at any hardware store will work as well. I run mine on gravity feed, so it needs no power, but it is kind of slow. I usually just start it and come over the next day, and it's all run through. But you can also use a small pump, uh, small fuel pump to pump, or other pump. If you're using a pump, try to put the pump after the filters and suck it through, not push it through because the process of going through the pump can emulsify some of the water that still remains and make it harder for it to be separated. Your truck stock fuel filter is 10 microns, so taking fuel down to that level is enough. Uh, I go down to 5 just because it means fewer filter changes on the truck, but it means more changes on the filter setup. And uh, you always want to make sure you're carrying some extra fuel filters when you're running these alternative fuels. Uh, there are also pre-made filter setups available if you don't want to build uh, One I've been very impressed with lately is done by a local company to me, and you can see their filters at greengoldfilters.com. Uh, I don't really have anything to do with them, the company other than having looked at their filters, and I actually carry one of their small bug-out filters, they call it, in my truck because it's a nice small setup that you can use in an emergency. 
my experience is that the Ford International 7.3s pre-power stroke will run up to about 75% waste motor oil mixed with diesel in the summer. But when the temperature starts dropping, you want to run less as the oil thickens in cold weather, and you always want it to be thin enough to flow uh, when you're starting up. Don't forget that if you plan to use waste motor oil as fuel on the highway, that you're required to still pay the road use tax. Running waste oil is treated the same as running untaxed off-road diesel in most states and is penalized pretty harshly with high fines if they catch you. I think it's stupid that they make it harder and penalize people just for going out of the way to use alternative fuels and actually recycle this stuff. But that's just another example of how the government gets in the way of innovation in this country. I hope that it helps you get started. I also have an article on the subject on Brink of Freedom, so be sure to check that out. And thanks for the question, and thanks, Jack, again for the great show. All right, so uh, let me just add one more thing about the uh, motor fuels tax thing. If you make your own fuel, I don't know how they would know you did that unless you told them. I'm not suggesting that anybody not pay their taxes. I'm just saying I don't know how they would know it unless you told them you do what you want to with that information. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Sometimes with life, politics, and everything, we just get all stressed and irate and whatnot. And sometimes you just want to go someplace peaceful. And I just thought, what would be the ten places in America that you would say, go here and enjoy this peaceful tranquility or just 10 places in america you think one should go for peace of mind uh, just a weird question but i i still think it kind of relates to just surviving this life wow 10 peaceful places i don't know if you have 90,000 people or more listening to you and you give the list out you might ruin the peacefulness of them um one i'm very leery about saying but i've told you guys i go there a lot so it's it's sanibel florida uh what i love about sanibel florida is that I used to go there in the late 70s and early 80s as a kid. And there are so many places that I remember from my childhood. And I have a vision in my mind of what they're like. And when I manage to finally as an adult go there and take someone I care about with me, like my wife or my son, or just have you know beers with friends at a place, almost never does it look the way it does that I remember it. And a lot of times I've thought, well, you know, you must just remember it different because you were a kid. And then the first year we went back to Sanibel, I went, no, I remember it right. Um, Sanibel has no chains on the restaurant uh, except for two. One is Dairy Queen that got in in, I think, 1955, so they got grandfathered in. And the other is called Cheeseburger Cheeseburger, which of all the places I like to eat on the island is probably not one that I would line up to go to. In fact, I've been there once and probably will never go again. Um But uh, it's on there because it's, it was the first one, and, they, and then they made a franchise of it off-island. So there's no McDonald's or Starbucks or anything like that on there. So that, And they have a limit to how high the buildings can be, and it won't ever be ever developed beyond pretty much where it is now. And because of that, you can walk the beach, and you can walk past where the you know resorts and all are, and you can get to a point where you don't see but two or three other people on the beach. And to me, uh, Sanibel's my favorite, but any place where you can do that, I think, is peaceful. Any place where you can walk at water's edge, especially barefoot and be comfortable, uh, sand, light gravel, things like that, and you can walk barefoot along water, I think, is a peaceful place. Um, I don't know that I can give you a list of ten. And I think I can give you better examples than I can give you places. Um, I think in concert with my show about fishing rivers and streams last um, last week, if you can get in a boat, a small boat, like a boat with a very small outboard or a 
trolling motor or just oars or what have you, a canoe, a kayak, and you can get on a, on a body of water, a navigable river or stream, and you can just get to where there's no roads. It almost doesn't matter. It's one of the most peaceful things in the world. It's part of why I love fishing that way so much. And if you can find a little island or something like that along a river that's suitable for camping, um, I think that's great. And you'd notice already two of them involve water. I think water is a great way to have peaceful, peaceful places. I think if you take up hunting, especially bow hunting, and you can find uninhabited forests where you don't see hardly any other people, time in a deer stand is extremely peaceful, especially as an archer where there's not a lot of other hunters out in archery season. It's quiet. Even when it comes time to do the deed, it's quiet. Um, and you see things you will never see anywhere else, and I think that's a big part of being peaceful, is being able to just be. And because you're in a small tree stand, you don't really have anything to do. You can't sit up there and read a book or be on your phone or anything. You've got to pay attention to what's going on around you. And I think the sitting and the being part of a place is more important than the where. Um, I think that if I could recommend something that would psychologically improve the minds of people, it would be bow hunting, um, specifically in the forest. I don't know if you get the same experience hunting, you know, antelope out on the plains or something like that, like that in a box blind or something like that. But actual bow hunting, either tree stand or stalk hunting or on the ground, uh, but really not even stalk hunting, sitting still. And becoming part of where you are. To the point where the small creatures around you accept you, accept you as part of their environment. Um, it's pretty cool to be up in a tree stand with your bow and all your gear. And be quiet and see chickadees move through the forest and have one land on your arrow that's knocked to your bow. And just look at you like, what is that? Or a squirrel run up a tree next to you. Not some park squirrel that's used to being fed peanuts. A wild squirrel that's terrified of people. And he's on his way down the tree and he stops and he just looks at you like, I don't know what that is. But I guess it's no threat. And he just continues on his way down. Those, those are places that are not geo-specific. They're situational. Um, my backyard's pretty peaceful. That's one of the places I feel at peace. And I think using permaculture techniques to develop a property can turn most properties into that. And I think it's it, it's as valuable as the food that's produced. If you can walk into your backyard and sit down and the sounds of the city melt away and are replaced by birds and frogs and, and insects, even if you're sitting on a tenth of an acre, I think that can be one of the most peaceful places that there are. In 1993, when I got out of the military and I just really couldn't immediately adapt Back to civilian life, I spent three months walking the Appalachian Trail, and I didn't walk the whole thing. I walked from central Pennsylvania to the Vermont border, Vermont New Hampshire border, and a little bit beyond. And I'd say the Appalachian Trail. And though I've never ventured south uh, from that point on it, I would bet the whole thing has that experience. There's a lot of trail systems in the country, but I think one of the most popular and the most well-written on uh, for that experience has been the Appalachian Trail. And I think it's mainly because it is the eastern woods. And so I would add to the non-geospecific, rather than just the Appalachian Trail, the northeastern woods. I love Texas. I love a lot of things about Texas. You know, if it weren't for government, though, the northeastern United States would probably be one of the best places in the world to live. And I'd say that's the case from Georgia all the way up to Maine. 
but really that Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, New Jersey. God, I hate saying that because the government sucks so bad. Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. Talk about terrible government, but that whole area. That forest is something special. Down into Kentucky and Tennessee. It's, it's that whole place. And that forest is a great place to just sit and be. There is a, I can't remember exactly where, but somewhere in Tennessee, there's an old forest. I've got a picture of my son inside a tree that fell over that they cut, you know, after it fell. And he was, you know, about eight or nine years old, and there's a hole in the middle of the log, and it was big enough he was able to crawl inside the hole. I don't remember exactly where that was, but there were trees three and four hundred years old. That place is pretty peaceful. A lot of caverns. I've been to uh, Longhorn Caverns. Uh, I've been to the caverns out in uh, Carlsbad. Uh, I've been to the, the caverns in and around Colorado Springs. Uh, the, these underground cave systems. There's one in Tennessee. I don't remember the name, but it doesn't really matter. Um, usually you end up with a pretty big group of people and all. But usually in that experience, on those tours... They'll take a minute somewhere, and they'll say, everybody sit still, nobody move. If you have kids, hold their hands. Nobody freak out. We're just going to turn the lights off, and everybody shut up for a minute. They don't say it that way, but that's basically the message. Utter silence. Utter darkness. We don't want to stay there for long, but for a moment. It's almost a sensory deprivation thing, and it's it puts you in touch with how fortunate we are that we have a planet like we do. The darkness is both comforting and frightening. I, I, I would add that to my list. I don't know if I'm up to ten things yet. I'm really not keeping track. I'm just kind of going through the history here. Um, I'm always at peace on a boat. Unless something's really, really wrong with the boat. Um, especially if I can get off the lakes that have tons of jet skiers and skiers and all that crap and party boaters. As long as the lake's big enough that there's parts of the lake that I can go to that they don't, I'm always at peace on a boat. I'm pretty well at peace when I'm in any ocean up to my waist with a surf rod in my hand. That's, that's a pretty peaceful thing. If you can find a waterfall, I think water is probably a, a huge key. Um, you know, there's been some really big waterfalls that I've gone to um, that are well-known tourist attractions, and they're always interesting in places you can pull a car up and walk a half mile and see it or whatever. But when I took that hike, I found a lot of little waterfalls. And, you know, you ain't seen anybody for an hour. And you don't see anybody up or down trail, and there's just this little waterfall there just to sit and relax. My place in the Arkansas mountains that we sold when we came here was pretty peaceful. I think that it always comes down to silence and nature and sound, and sound that's natural sound. The sound of animals, water, and wind, and the way that either ocean or forest moderates climate. I think those are kind of the key. So I don't know if I can give you ten places, but those are the things I look for when it comes to relaxation and peacefulness, and quiet. If I can put water, and then something to moderate things, either an ocean breeze or a forest, eliminate large numbers of people, and have wildlife around me, and especially the sound of moving water to go with the water. That's what I'm looking for. love to hear from you guys. What is the most peaceful places you've ever been? 
and uh, how does it help you reset mentally? Because I do think it's a big part of surviving the modern world. We're not just here to survive, you know, the apocalypse if it comes, but day-to-day living, which is getting more and more difficult to do. And pausing, I think, is an immense advantage. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, John, West Virginia. I I, I would like to hear you uh, do an interview on Coast to Coast AM. The Coast to Coast every day. After I listen to the Survival Podcast, but I'd like to hear you on there. I think I think you'd make a good guess. Thanks a lot. Well, I've listened to Coast to Coast on occasion, and it ranges from people that are well, I can only describe as batshit crazy to really interesting uh, people that provide a lot of really valuable information. I would certainly go on the show. Um, I don't really know how to initiate that process. I know that several people that have been on the show have mentioned me and the podcast of the host. I've never heard from them. I don't know, maybe if a whole bunch of people from the Survival Podcast start telling them they wanted to hear me on there, um, they would be interested. If there is a way to formally apply, if someone will let me know what that is, uh, I will do so. I have really kind of taken a back step from doing a lot of media appearances and things like that. Uh, I've gotten to a point where I don't know that it really does a lot for the show, but I think with the audience size Coast to Coast has, uh, it would. I could talk about a myriad of subjects with those folks. I don't know what they'd want to talk to me about. My problem with most media, and Coast to Coast may not be this problem, is that, um, well, they always want to typecast you when they talk about preparedness and survivalism. And if you know my work and my show, we're the first thing in the world from being typecast about preparedness. Um, and I think that we can talk about preparedness, but it needs to be in the context of something specific and not a bunch of black helicopters and FEMA coffins and other stupid crap like that. So I would love to talk to the folks over at Coast to Coast. I'd love to be on there. And if you guys can uh, jar the system a little bit for me with some requests or come up with a way that we can organize that, I'd be happy to. Um, it has worked before. Uh, it was the way that we got on Judge Napolitano's show years and years ago, was just simply with enough TSPers rattling the cage of the producer enough. He's like, we got to get this guy on, man. Um, so it, it is possible. Anyway, uh, John, I just actually talked to you by instant message on Facebook. I happened to be on there, and he pinged me. And I said, man, we miss you. You need to call in. That's John from West Virginia for those that are new to the show. He used to be a staple around here. He's distinctive, to say the least, in his voice. And he actually called in two calls. So I'm going to go ahead and take his second call since it's been so long since we heard from our old friend, Brother John, in West Virginia. Hey, Jack. John in West Virginia. I have a question. Uh, I have a pop-up camper. It's a 89 model, which really don't matter. But I want to know uh, what you think about the ways to treat the canvas to just uh, put it up to kind of waterproof everything. All right. Appreciate it. Hey, well, John, I'd be able to give you a really great answer if you had added one more piece of information to the part that you think didn't matter. You said it's an 89 model, and if you would have told me the make and manufacturer, I could have looked up the user's manual probably in PDF on their website and found out exactly what the canvas is made out of. Um, to determine whether or not you should use certain products on it. And the reason I say that is most of the stuff that's on pop-up campers is not just canvas. It's either canvas that's laminated with something, or it's not canvas at all. It's a vinyl or a vinyl-type product. 
and each of them have different things that can be used to uh, to improve uh, their waterproofing and their longevity. If it's pure canvas, if it's pure canvas, something as simple as Scotch Guard will work. Um, probably the best universal product that I can recommend for you is a product called Starbright, S-T-A-R-B-R-I-T-E, waterproofing with P-T-E-F. I'm going to try to pronounce what that is. It's called polytetrafluoroethylene. I think that's the right way to say that. Um, but it works, and it is safe for use on canvas, nylon, uh, blends in leather, and it's also usable on... A, 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 a trademarked product called Sombrella. And it's probably the best product that I know for boat covers. I mean, we use it to waterproof and improve the waterproofing of things like just the old GI military shelter halves that we use for shelter for our animals and things like that. Um, and it works really, really good. Um, it is not cheap. It's about $41 a gallon Uh, but it's the best product that I've found. For, and it'll probably work really well for what you got there. Uh, and a gallon probably more than do what you need. So um, that's my universal uh, product that I would recommend. Again, it's called Starbright, S-T-A-R-B-R-I-T-E. It is two words. The manufacturer is known as Starbright, but Starbright Waterproofing with P-T-E-F. Uh, it, it is the best product that I have found for that type of application, but I would still make sure you know exactly what the material of your pop-up camper is made out of, and the best way to find that out is to try to look up the old user's manual for it. With it being an 89, uh, it may not be as easy to find as a newer model, but you probably can. You can probably at least contact a manufacturer through their website, assuming they're still in business, and ask them what it was made out of. If you just know it's canvas, this stuff will work. I mean, Scotchgard will work if you know it's canvas, but this is the best product I've found. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Mike again from Lakewood, California. Sorry about that. Hey, I'm going to give it one more shot here about the uh, chickens and quail in three, two, one. Hey, Jack, this is Mike. I'm in Lakewood, California, and I have a question about chickens and quails. I'm trying to process food waste that's donated to us from a local food shelter, and I'm wondering how effective are quail at processing this biomass down? I don't expect that they will rival chicken's ability, but if it's anywhere close, I would give it more consideration as my daughter is allergic to chicken eggs. Your advice is greatly appreciated. Thanks, Jack. Keep up the good work. A standard permaculture answer is it depends on what kind of food you're going to feed them. Uh, the good news is quail are a little bit more particular than chickens, so you're not going to really offer them anything that's going to harm them, and they're going to eat much of it. Um, they will pretty much, if they don't like some, they won't eat it. And they pretty much won't gorge themselves on any one thing if they have a variety offered to them. They'll eat things like pasta, rice, old pieces of cake, corn, lettuce, Salad green type stuff. Um, they're not that big in my experience on fruits and stuff like that. So they're not going to be as good at it as chickens. And I would say that the smart thing to do would be to get a little bit of these different things that are regularly available and try it and see what they will and what they will not eat. And as long as you can get it in small enough quantities that they can process through it for you, um, and you can selectively get the stuff they'll actually eat, 
you know, leftover salad greens and stuff like that. If Connor Wills did it all, they'll probably eat that pretty well. Um, that should work out pretty well. Um, I want to say, and, and that's the best answer I can give you on. I really can't give you a long, drawn-out uh, explanation, anything. That's just my knowledge of quail. I'm not a super expert on quail or nothing. Um, maybe Moon Valley Prepper is listening and he can, you know, comment, but I think he feeds pretty much just feed to his quail and they do really well on that. Um, I do want, the one thing that kind of perked my interest when you said your, your daughter or son, I don't remember which one it was now, but your child has allergies to, to chicken eggs. And the fact that uh, they don't have allergies to quail eggs brings me to the question, are they really allergic to chicken eggs? And I'm not saying they're not, and you can't mess around with allergies, especially when people have a hyperallergic response. Uh, and some people are really, really allergic to eggs. I haven't heard of a lot of people that are allergic to one kind of egg, but not the other kind of egg, though, unless there's a dietary reason uh, in the fowl itself. What is the bird eating? And I know for a fact there are people who have sworn to God that they are allergic to an egg. They cannot eat an egg without getting hives and itches and reactions and all kinds of things. And that person will also discover that they're allergic to soy. And they go out and they eat with something with soy in it, and they get the same type of responses or worse than they get from an egg. And they say to themselves, Self, are you really allergic to eggs from chickens? Or are you allergic to soy eggs from chickens? And they'll find a source of eggs that don't have soy in them at all. These birds are never fed soy, which is difficult to do because most organic eggs are fed soy meal as part of their diet and ration in day-to-day -day activity. And they'll eat an egg with no soy, and they'll have no allergic reactions to it whatsoever. I'm going to preface with that with a caveat. There are people, though it is rare, who are allergic to chicken and not quail, or allergic to chicken and not duck. It's very, very rare that a person is, is actually allergic to one type of egg and not the other, though. It's very rare. Eggs from most fowl, especially that are used for, you know, egg production, are so similar chemically that if somebody has that experience, it's worth at least investigating. So if your son, daughter, or who's your daughter, has never eaten an egg from a chicken, you can 100% verify, was not fed soy. And the type of allergy they have is, is, is not in any way life-threatening, so you're not taking their life in your hands here. Trying to eat a little bit of it and a little bit more and a little bit more and seeing if there's no allergic reaction. Sourcing eggs you know are soy-free may be worth it. If you've had allergy tests done on her, and among the test things that were tested for, soy was tested for, and soy came up, bing, 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 positive, that's a huge red flag for me. That that's the real problem, and it would not be the first time I'd heard of it. Okay, so now are you are you thinking about doing quail because you believe that she won't be allergic to quail eggs, but she's never actually eaten them? If that's the case, you may want to source some quail eggs and test that theory first, because in general people will be allergic to both. And if if it's a soy issue, and it just so happens that you got quail eggs from somebody that wasn't using soy-based feeds. And now all of a sudden you're getting quail eggs from someone who's using soy. All of a sudden the allergy might show back up. So make sure soy's not the bugaboo. But when it comes to processing waste with quail, I'd suggest go light and small first to see what they prefer. Because quail will just, they won't even think about it. It's, I don't like that. 
and chickens to a degree, but they just have that opinion a lot less act, uh, a lot less of the time as far as I'm considered. Now, if you have a lot of organic waste like this and you're not going to have chickens, consider putting in some worm bins. And if you don't want a big, huge worm bin, consider putting in some tube worm bins right into your gardens. Get yourself a four-inch piece of PVC pipe, drill a whole bunch of so holes in the side of it, sink it two feet into the, the bed, Fill it with manure and leaves and things like that. Don't fill it with dirt. You'll kill your worms. Put some compost worms in it. Put a little flower pot top over the top of it so it doesn't dry out. And then take all that waste and just keep adding it to your tubes. And you'll never even have to process your worm waste. It'll all just seep right into the garden. That'd be another way to deal with it. I think we got one more call, maybe two, and we'll be done for the day. Hello, Jack. Brian from Delaware. My question is, in about a month, I'm going to be processing 10 meat birds. I've uh, processed a chicken here and there a few times, and I've done a lot of bird hunting, but I've always breasted them out versus uh, doing a whole bird. I'm going to try to do all 10 chickens in one day by myself, and uh, didn't know if you had any tips as to easy process as to set it up, uh, whether you use home equipment or professional equipment. Um, just trying to save myself uh, mistakes along the way. Any tips and help would be... Helpful. Thank you very much. I love the show. Have a good one. Well, I'll describe what I do, and then you can take it from there, and I'll give you some thoughts on ways to improve the speed of processing. And I'll also say that you don't have to process every bird the same way. So you might pluck half of them, and you might not pluck the other half and simply skin them. So this is how I process a whole bird if I want it skin intact. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a way to slaughter them, and my slaughtering method does not involve cones. Uh, it involves a five-gallon bucket and some string. And for each station, if I'm going to slaughter a lot of birds, I'm going to set up three bleeding stations at a time. I have a five-gallon bucket with about four inches of wood chips in the bottom of it to absorb the blood because it's excellent fertilizer. I have two ropes coming down with slip knots in them, just like you'd make a little noose with. Put the bird upside down, one leg in each knot. The reason I use two is for some reason, uh, when you put both legs into one slip knot, a lot of times the bird will come out of it. When you do one and one, they don't. So it's just more stable. The bird is less upset, and it's more calm. You're going to have a better experience slaughtering them. Uh, I put the buckets underneath, and I have the rope hung so that when there's a chicken hanging there, the chicken's about halfway in the bucket and halfway out. That way when the chicken flops some, Uh, it doesn't uh, go, the blood doesn't go everywhere. It all ends up in the bucket, and the bucket acts sort of like a cone. To do that, though, you've got the chicken hanging pretty low. So when you go to slit the chicken's neck, you end up having to pull the chicken so it's horizontal to the ground and get it up to about waist height. So this brings you a couple feet away from your bucket, and you pull out. This puts some tension on the bird's neck. I hold the bird's neck, or the head, actually, in my left hand, and I massage the area where the neck and the head meet, where the, where the arteries and the veins are. And I put a little pressure, not enough to hurt the bird, just a little pressure, and the eyeballs roll back in the head, bird passes out. It takes about 10 seconds of that to put that bird completely asleep. Slice, slice. I've never had a bird react to the slicing. Slight deep, deep enough that you're getting in, you're cutting into the vein and artery, but not so deep that you're cutting into the bone. If you feel the bone back off just a little bit, you just basically barely be coming across the bone. Make sure the bird's bleeding, put it in the bucket. If you do it right, I'd say about half the time I do a bird like that, it barely flips or doesn't even move. bird never wakes up. And people that have been here, the workshop saw me do one, can tell you that's the truth. People have called me a liar for it, but there's people that have witnessed it. 
where the bird moved so little, even I kind of checked it. Like, is that bird really, did I cut it? You know, and the bird was flat out asleep, dead. Then I scald the birds, and the temperature for scalding chickens is very, very important. I want to scald a chicken between 140 and 150 degrees, and right around 145, 150 is perfect. If it's much over 150, I'll let the water come down in temperature. I use a propane burner and a great big pot. I just need enough room to get one bird in at a time. That's fine. Um, you want to scald the bird to the point where the feathers start to come out easily. As soon as they start coming out easily, stop scalding. I'd rather underscald and have a little bit of a hard time getting the feathers out and go back in and give it another little bit of a scald to loosen them up than overscald. When you start pulling feathers off, if you've got a bird with a good fat content, you should see some yellow spots in the skin where there's fat in the skin. If you scald to the point where those yellow spots turn white, you've overscalded and you're going to have skin tears. And if you want a whole nice roaster, it's, you probably don't want skin tears. And you start pull, pulling your feathers. And most of your feathers will come out really, really easily. It's going to be the wing feathers and the leg feathers you spend the most time on, a few of the breast feathers. So I pluck my birds. If you wear natural gloves, rubber gloves, um, skin-tight ones like for surgical use, a lot of times you just rub your hand and the rubber helps grab the feathers and it's easier to get all your feathers off. And like your legs, if you scald it right, you can basically put your, your thumb and your ring finger like in a circle around there, kind of like your, uh, like if you had mud and gook all over one of your fingers and you were going to strip the mud off with the other hand like that and just run back and forth and it'll take a lot of those feathers right off and it's not that bad hand plucking. Especially if you're doing two or three birds. Ten. To me, it's just not enough birds to, to warrant renting a plucker. It'll probably cost too much to make it effective. If I was doing 40 or 50 birds, if I was doing 20 birds, I'd rent a plucker. If I wanted them all, if I wanted them all plucked. The plucking is where all the time is. Once that time's done, you take the feet off, um, you, you cut around the anus, you go in without breaking anything, you gut the bird out, uh, clean the bird out well. I like to save the heart, the lizard, and the gizzard. Uh, heart the lizard, the heart, the liver, and the gizzard are the three things that I usually take out of the bird. I usually don't save uh, kidneys or anything like that. A lot of times the feet, if I'm just doing a couple, I'll take the feet, I dip them in hot water, uh, clean them off a bit, and the, the nails will come right off. And if it's a rooster, the spur case will come off. And if you want to process and eat chicken feet, you can. I'm not a big fan of chicken feet. I throw them to the dog. Dog loves them. Um, and that's it. And... Would I rent a plugger for 10? I probably would. I would do just what I said. I would probably figure I need three hours. Uh, most I've ever done by myself plucked is six birds, and it took me about two hours from slaughter to being ready to put them in the freezer. I want to have a cooler with cold water with some ice in the water, and as the birds are finished and rinsed out really well, you drop them in there. Uh, I use a propane burner to run my scalding pot, and a lot of times I'll take the pot off, and uh, when, I'm, when I've got the birds plucked, there's some, some uh, hair feathers, turn the burner way down, and kind of flip the bird around on there to burn off the, the hair feathers, or use a little butane torch. Either one works just fine. Now, simplifying your life. When I'm killing a bird that's just because we hatched some or something, and we've got some extra roosters, and they got to go, and they're like half-grown, they're not going to be a really big carcass. I kill the bird like I described. I always kill ethically. Try to do it in a way that's the least stressful 
because it's a quality to me, and then just a responsibility to the animal that you've chose to bring into this world, that you've made part of your life, you take it out, you do it with some, some morals and some ethics. And to me, that means not stressed out and as little pain as possible. No creature wants to die, but if we're going to eat meat, something's going to die. So I kill it the exact same way. Once it's dead, I take a knife and I cut the skin on the breast and I pull it back just like you had breasted out. And I take a knife and I take the two breast cutlets out. I don't have to go into the chest cavity at all to do this. This is what I do that most hunters don't. Put your hand down inside the skin after you've breasted out. There's more room to work with. That's why I go ahead and breast it out first. Get your one hand in the skin. Get your other two, like so the two fingers, your two main fingers, your 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 flip-off finger and your index finger on your left hand. And when you're on the left side of the bird, goes in against the skin. And then the right index finger and flip-off finger go in and grab the bottom of the drumstick in the thigh and pull the leg out. Right. Now, before you do this, cut the feet off at that joint, pull that out, and just like you're pulling a sock off, and then go in with your knife and dejoint the thigh. You take the thigh and the leg as a cutlet. Do the same thing, reversing your fingers on the other side, or flip the bird around and do it from the backwards way, whatever you're more comfortable with. Take the thigh and the leg. The truth is, on a chicken, if you take the thigh, the leg, and the breast cutlets, you've taken 85-90% of the usable meat. Yes, on a big bird, you, you probably have enough sitting there to make a pot of soup. The back, the neck, all that other stuff, and the bones for stock. And I understand that, but there's a fundamental reality here that there's only so much meat on a bird, especially a, a homegrown, uh, pastured chicken, and we only have so much time in our day, and we've taken most of it. If the bird's a little bit bigger and there's some value to the wings, you can go up and pull that wing out. And all you got to do is pull the wing to where you've got the second joint exposed. So you've got the, the, the drumette, as they call it, when you buy wings. And you've got that forearm piece. The tip has got no meat on it. And once you've done that, you, you dejoint the tip and dejoint the, the, the shoulder. And you've got a little wing cutlet there. You can take that if you want to, too. If you want to do soup, you take your breasts. You cook them however you would. You take a couple chickens worth of thigh leg cutlets and the little wing knobettes, bones and all. Throw that in a pot. That'll make you a fine stock. It's a great idea. Take your feet. This is the one used for feet. It makes really good chicken stock. Again, you, you kind of cut around and remove the feet at that joint before where it goes into the drumstick is. You dip your feet in hot water, and the scales come off. All the nastiness comes off if it's an older bird. The the claws, the, you'll just see like a, like a, a shed will come off of each toenail. That way it won't fall off in your soup and you'll miss it. you got a toenail in your soup. Not the whole nail, just like a sheath comes off of them. And there's like a sheath that comes off the spur if it's a rooster. A couple, three, four uh, feet. Boil that in your stock. Remove it and give it to the dog. And if you boil it long enough to make a stock, it's going to be soft enough. The dog's not going to have bones in his, his throat or whatever. You boil the shit out of it. And it will really thicken up the broth with the gelatin and all the flavorings that are in there. And my grandmother believed you could not make real chicken soup without that foot. But then what you end up with is you either have uh, thigh and leg cutlets that are skinless and boneless can be used any way you want, or thigh and leg cutlets that can be used to make soup and stock, and two nice breast cutlets. And I feel if you open the bird up that way, and you don't have to gut it or nothing like that, you throw it in a garbage bag, there's no problem just throwing that out in the, in the garbage. Again, if you, this is if you're doing ten birds or less, maybe a dozen at the most this way. Um, and if it's, you know, as long as you have a deep freezer or something like that, 
if you are in the middle of the week and trash isn't coming until you know Monday morning and it's Wednesday, put it all in a big zip, uh, big uh, grocery bag, not a grocery bag, a big uh, durable uh, garbage bag. Tie it up, throw it in the deep freezer. Monday morning when you take the trash out, make a reminder so you don't forget. It'll be in there weeks and after weeks if you forget. Pull the bag out, throw it in the trash can, and off it goes, and it'll never stink. It'll be at the dump before it stinks. I do feel a little bit bad when I do that. But again, when you're dealing with young roosters of birds that are primarily for laying eggs, and that bird doesn't weigh but maybe five pounds, you know, a live weight, it's just not worth all the trouble to pluck it. Now, you've, if you've grown the bird for me, and it's a large breed or a Cornish cross or something like you're talking about, plucking it is definitely a way to go. Meat tastes better with the skin on it. I don't care what the health nuts say. It's very good. Chicken fat's good for you, especially pastured chicken fat. But to me, you don't have to be all or nothing. You could pluck and set as roasters six of these birds, which would take you about two hours, and you could probably do the other four just by skinning them, breasting them, and cutling them in about five minutes a bird. I can do a bird, if you don't, it depends on how long it takes the bird to bleed out, but from the time the bird's dead, I don't even need a knife to get the skin. You rip the skin, pull the skin back, one cutlet, probably 40 seconds. And then the other one, I don't know why, but one side's always easier for me. The other, maybe a minute. Pull the leg out. That takes about 10 seconds each side, another 20 seconds. Getting down there and dejoining it, dejoining the legs, another 30, 40 seconds, probably less than five minutes of bird to do that way and end up with uh, a skinless boneless drumstick, a skinless boneless, or a skin, not a skinless, a boneless, but a skinless drumstick, thigh, cutlet, two each from each bird, and two skinless, boneless uh, breast cutlets, less than five minutes of bird. And 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 if you if you're willing to do that, it makes it a lot easier for you to do like incubate your own eggs like we're doing now and all because you know the surplus roosters, you don't have to just put a whole Saturday aside to deal with them. And another option, if you have big livestock guardian dogs or something like that, I know people that they breast out and cutlet out their birds and they take the rest of the carcass and they just throw it to their livestock guardian dogs and they eat the whole damn thing. And I mean, I don't feed my dogs that way, but plenty of people do, and uh, it seems to work out well for them. So that's what I do. Uh, that's the approach that I take. And while I do find breasting out alone to be wasteful, I don't think it's wasteful if you'll take the leg quarters. And I, I think if you try it, you'll realize how easy it is to do. Uh, it really gets to the point where it's about your knife skills and being able to get and, and turn that leg out and find that joint and de-joint that joint. Pop it, pop the, the, the ball out of the socket and go back through the other side. Pull that out. It's really, really fast and really, really easy to do once you get good at it. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I'm sorry I missed the call-in show for you on Friday. This one went long. Hopefully it makes up for uh, for missing that show. And i got good news for those of y'all who have been following my progress here on the homestead and my desire for rain. It looks like it's about to come a flood and fill my swales. And boy, do we need it. Uh, with that, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. And uh, you guys have a great day. Remember, if you want to call in for a show like this, 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. And uh, everybody have a great Monday afternoon.
like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Shut is